Thank you, Mr. Bailiff. Appreciate it. We're here today on a case called uh, Dianla Sean Simmons versus the state of Indiana. Here representing Mr. Simmons is uh, Mr. Brian Woodward and sitting second chair is Mr. Mark Bates. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. And here for the state is Delon Weaver and Ellen Mylander is here as second chair. Are the parties ready to proceed? Yes, sir. I, I see, Mr. Woodward, that you've um, reserved five minutes for rebuttal. That's correct. All right, you may proceed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back in front of your honors again so soon. Just last month we were here. Uh, on behalf of Mr. Simmons, we are requesting that his conviction be reversed or, or alternatively that uh, the matter be remanded for a new trial. I'll, I will touch briefly on the facts just for the student's edification. Um, the decedent here, a young lady, barely a teenager, um, was somewhat of a homeless person person. She was young. Uh, the first indication we have is she showed up at a stranger's house for a birthday party. They didn't know who she was. Uh, they gave her clothes. I'm going to refer to her as T for purposes of our argument. T. Um, Mr. Simmons was called. He was a friend of the Castro's where T showed up she was 14 years old, is that right? She was 14 years old. And uh, her body was found ultimately in Gary in, a, in an alley, and it had been there for two or three days? Well, that's uh, the forensic pathologist that testified stated that uh, it could have been as many as four days, I believe, but uh, two to four days. There was, there was a window, but she, her body had been there for some time and no one knew who she was. They had to do DNA testing, did they not? They had find to find out uh, who, who she was. They had to get DNA from her biological mother, who she was not living with uh, at the time. She was living with another woman who hadn't seen her. Her body was found September the 16th. She hadn't been seen by her foster mother, adopted mother, since July the 31st. So the indications are she was living on the street between July 31st and September 16th when she was filed. That's, that's correct. Thank you. Now, um, the place she showed up for the birthday party, that woman called Mr. Simmons and requested that he give T a ride back home, wherever that may have been. He showed up along with his girlfriend and they gave her a, a ride and he stated when he came back to the birthday party that he had dropped T off at the south end. The south end, or the low end, is the south side of Chicago. That's where all the uh, pertinent facts other than where the body was discovered uh, take place. Um, now, uh, a few things about the body being found and their pertinent facts 
as to our particular argument, there was a shell casing found by the body, just one, it was a nine millimeter shell casing. That shell casing did not match the, the bullets found in the bag, magazine of Mr. Simmons' uh, trunk of his vehicle. They were different, uh, obviously the same caliber, they were both nine millimeter, but they were different brands and types. So would the bullet that she was shot with, or that killed with, um, would that have uh, been used, could that have been used in the nine millimeter that was found in Mr. Simmons' car? The, the, they found a frame to a nine millimeter firearm in Mr. Simmons' trunk of his car. Obviously, it was a nine millimeter casing that was found at the scene. Mm -hmm. But the bullets that were in the magazine to the firearm but were not the a, same But it's just a different type. brand, right? It's the same type of bullet, it's just a different brand. Because they're both nine millimeters, yes, they, they would okay. be the same type. But of course, that, that wouldn't be unusual because uh, the nine millimeter handgun, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is the most sold handgun in the United States. And so it would certainly not be unusual. But there's a, not only is there the, the element that the, the bullet or the round found at the scene didn't match the ammunition found in Mr. Simmons' trunk, but the other side of that is that those two, the finding of the ammunition in his trunk and the uh, murder are spaced out by almost a year, correct? The, um, well, I don't think we can age, age the, the uh, ammunition necessarily. Well, no, I'm, I said when it was found, not when it was purchased or when it was began being possessed by Mr. Oh, Simmons. No. But yeah. I mean, the, the search warrant on the vehicle, Mr. Simmons' vehicle, was approximately a year after the body was discovered, correct? That's, that is correct. Right. It, was, it was sometime later that that ammunition was found. And, and again, we don't have a full firearm. We just have a frame and a magazine. That, that's the only parts that... What's a frame? Firearms have what's called an upper and a lower. Uh, the lower would be the, the trigger and, and the inner workings. The upper, I, I think the upper in this case would probably be the frame that is it's, it's just the part that it wouldn't have a, the slide on top. So it's basically the gun without the slide. But correct. Okay. So you're arguing no. sufficiency of the evidence, and that's a very difficult argument for you to win. Why is this a case where your client should be successful on that? There are, there are a number of reasons why that's the case, Your Honor. Um, first and it's foremost. It's a very circumstantial case. It's, it's entirely circumstantial. Now, we know that Collectively, the facts can, in some circumstances, uh, establish guilt beyond reasonable doubt. So the facts but most, most uh, reasonable for the jury to have heard, or the facts most favorable to the jury verdict, those are, he was last seen with her. We have some evidence that, he, that uh, the victim and the defendant were using the same IP address days before her body was found. And we have his admission that he dropped her off at Little Caesar's Pizza several days before the body was found. And then we have some DNA evidence on um, the, the thing that was binding her. I don't remember, spark? spark there were spark plug spark wires plugs. or cords. Um, 
Yes, thanks. And his DNA is on the spark plug that was binding her wrist? It was, and um, I'm glad you brought that up, Your Honor, because we would almost expect that to have occurred in this case because we know that this young lady was at Mr. Simmons' mother's house where Mr. Simmons frequented, and I don't think the record establishes whether he was residing there or not, but I, I believe he was. His DNA was everywhere in that house. We all know at this point, you know, 20 years ago we didn't think this was the case, but we all know that DNA transfers, and it transfers easily, that we would have expected his DNA to be on that young lady's body, especially if she was there sitting in chairs, roaming around that house, and we know she was there because of that IP address that her uh, messenger But the DNA used. wasn't just found on her body, it was found on the spark plug wire that was binding her hands, her Ob arms, right? It, her wrists. Her wrists, And yeah. obviously, if the DNA is anywhere on her hands, it's going to be on the spark plug wire. The DNA really adds nothing to the equation in this case, nothing at all. We would almost expect that DNA to be on those cords. So that's just one factor. We now, don't. Is he, your client a mechanic? Does he work on cars? There, there was some testimony to the fact that he worked on cars. Um, and I know the state made a big deal about that in their closing argument, that uh, the fact that he worked on cars and these were spark plug wires that were used to bind her arms you know, again, it's kind of like the DNA evidence. I'm not even sure that it rises to the level of circumstantial evidence. I, well, I'd be remiss to say discount that completely because we can't. However, the fact that someone had used spark plug wires, and, and don't forget, there was an unknown contributor to the DNA on the second location that was tested for the DNA. So, and that person was never identified. Wasn't her body found near the uncle's house of your uh, client, Mr. Simmons? Actually, I think it was close to his father's house. Okay. If I'm, um, there was a, a woman that lived, his aunt actually lived uh, right where the body was found. And one of her credit, it was a uh, prepaid credit card, I believe it was, was found outside, that's how they located that woman, and she said that, yes, Mr. Simmons' father lived there, and, and his two sons, Mr. Simmons and his brother, used to live there. Um, so we have that he knew her. We have that uh, they were using the same IP address. We know that her body was found near a relative's house of hers. We know he said that two or three days before her body was found, that he took her to Pizza Hut or some pizza place in Northwest Indiana. And we know that the cell phone uh, pinged. Uh, his cell phone pinged in Highland and Griffith. On the Highland Griffith border, Your Honor? Yes. Yeah. At 3.47 a.m. on September the 14th. Right. Now Which matches what the, the coroner says her her death was three or four days before they found her on the 18th. I guess my big question is this. Your office had a wonderful case called Young versus State, which I reversed on appeal because of insufficient evidence 
on a sufficiency. Uh, and of course, you know, the Supreme Court reversed me and my colleagues. And in that case, they said, you know, we have to look at the web of facts totally and tell me why this is a better case. Yeah, let's talk than about Young. Young for, let's talk about Young for a second because yeah. Young, we know that Mr. Young was in the vicinity. Is Young the cigarette butt case? Yes. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. <laughs> you know, and yeah, we had DNA on a cigarette butt in an alley across the street from where um, the shooting occurred. Found two, two days, days later. later, right? <laughs> uh, but we know in Young's case that Mr. Young was there. We and he left. He was at that gas station, as I recall. We could, but there was no indication that he even knew the person that was killed um, or that was there was no motive correct right you know the problem and again the problem we have, and I want to correct your honor on one thing yes the pizza um, it was not in northwest Indiana oh it was he he brought tea I believe and I want to say it was Little Caesars Little Caesars I think it was, right. Little Caesars. it was Little Caesars and um, because she returned to her friend's house after she had messaged Mr. Simmons, if you recall, she uh, messaged using her friend's phone, and but her own Facebook account. She got the pizza and then came back to her friend's house where she re remained until about 11 o'clock that night. And then her, uh, wasn't her mother, I believe her grandmother would not let T spend the night It sounds there. like you're asking us to reweigh evidence which we can't do. So if we can't reweigh evidence and we have Young as a barrier, how do we get to reversal on a sufficiency in this case? Well, and no, I'm not asking to reweigh evidence because that we cannot do. But what we can do, and you know, I look at this through the prism of the jury instructions that say if there's two reasonable interpretations, the jury was bound to use the interpretation of innocent that was in led to innocence, not guilt. So we have what by all intents and purposes is nothing but a platonic relationship between Mr. Simmons and this um, young street person, to say, put it bluntly. Um, you know, no one really knows where she stayed in the evenings or where she went. Uh, she was permitted to use Mr. Simmons' mother's house and come and go freely. There is no evidence of, absolutely no evidence of any untoward or threatening communications of any type. It just, it's nonsensical that, and that, that uh, ping, it's one ping in Northwest Indiana at 3.47 a.m. And that body wasn't found until two days later this is an alley in a city, you know. But when they found the body, didn't they uh, figure out that it was had been there for a couple days based on insect larvae? I think three to four days is what the, um, I think three to four days is what the forensic pathologist okay. testified to. We're um, going to give you a little bit more time because you spent a lot of time talking so that the students would understand the facts. But I'd like to turn to the, the authentication issue with the business record. Thank you. If you, if we agree with you on that, is this harmless error or is it reversible error 
to have, an, to have submitted this gun report? I'm going to submit to the court that it's reversible error, and this is the reason why. First of all, if you look at the bottom of that Exhibit 103, and I'm sure your honors have seen this already, it clearly says at the bottom of that exhibit, the information in this report must be validated prior to use in any criminal proceedings. That wasn't done. This document, 103, is not authenticated. That's almost a given. So, that being, I'm sorry. But the, the harmless, even if it was admitted in error, and we presume it was admitted in error, um, is it not cumulative of other testimony or evidence that already established what the document is purporting to establish, which is the purchase date of uh, the firearm, is that correct? Part of it is, but part of it isn't. Well, and you got to remember, we have to look at the, we have to look at this in light of the evidence that's available, and it's a circumstantial case. And the the state argued this document in its closing argument, and they relied upon this document in their closing argument to substantiate guilt, along with the other um, alleged circumstantial evidence. Because, and probably. The most telling part of this document, it says, it talks about a recovery date because it was a stolen firearm. And it says, time to crime, 1,644 days. This is about the worst 404B evidence that you could put in front of the jury. That by itself was, is probably enough to warrant reversal and a retrial. However, the fact that the state relied upon it, uh, I see I'm into my time. I don't know if it's not right here. I'm, yeah, I'm going to let you go on just for a minute or so, if okay. you would. Um, and it shows where the purchase was made. It was at a gun show. You know, we can go back and forth as to, you know, the connotations of private sales of firearms and so forth and so on. I think that's prejudicial by itself. The fact that it was stolen is prejudicial. This document should not have been admitted into evidence. Uh, and uh, the, the final issue is the issue relating to his statement during his interview uh, that he just got back home or something to that effect. Clearly a reference to his recent return from imprisonment. Now, the state argues. Why is that? I mean, if I go on vacation, I just got back home, or if I, if I'm when I go home from work today, I just got back home. Why is it clearly a reference I, I, to getting out of jail or incarceration? I, I think when you view that comment in the context of the whole interview, it was a lengthy interrogation, and when you look at that comment and the things that were um, redacted, that statement, it wasn't needed. The only reason it was in there was an indication that this man had been to prison in the past. Again, that's further 404B evidence in conjunction with this exhibit, which is 404B evidence. And uh, that's why those two things in conjunction with um, the lack of circumstantial evidence, that's why they bear greater weight. And that's why we're asking for reversal. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. Mr. Williver, am I pronouncing it right? Welliver. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Welliver. May it please the court. The state presented sufficient evidence when viewed as a whole picture to prove that the defendant murdered the 14-year-old victim. And the state also authenticated the gun trace report under Rule 901. The evidence in this case included the defendant's DNA on the cord that bound the victim's wrist when her body was discovered. And although the defense uh, talks about this idea of touch transfer of DNA, the DNA analyst in this case also talked about that and talked about how the transfer of skin cells, he called it tricky, and that um, the, and I want to make sure I get this right, that the transfer of a few cells from touch DNA is less likely than if you have a good source of DNA. And in this case, when it's viewed in conjunction with the testimony of the forensic pathologist that the cords which bound the victim's wrists, that some force was applied to that cord because it left furrow marks on her wrist, the likelihood of the defendant transferring his DNA to the cords as he yanked on the cords and binding her wrist is much more likely and was the reasonable interpretation that the jury drew from this evidence. Was it definitive that it was the defendant's DNA or was there a strong possibility that it was the defendant's DNA? The, the way that that mixture was reported is um, it had the victim's DNA, it had his, and they said that it was one trillion times more likely that it was his DNA in that mixture than that it would have been some unknown individual. So it was uh, at the very high end, they have a, a number of different ways that they report that out. And it was whatever the strongest conclusion that the DNA analyst, the way that he uh, could testify, it was the very strongest support for the inclusion of his DNA on that court. Additionally, as this court has already noted, those cords were spark plug wires, which is something that not everybody would have, but the defendant himself admitted to the police that he worked on cars. When she was found with those wires, with the defendant's DNA, it was in an alleyway that backed up to the house of, it was actually a first cousin, and within two blocks of where the defendant's father lived, which was an area that he had initially denied to police to being there until they confronted him with the evidence of his, the ping of his cell phone just a few miles from that area within the time frame of the victim's death. Can we talk about the weapon a little bit? Is there anything regarding the weapon to suggest that he was the one that fired the gun. We just, all we know is that it's a nine millimeter casing found by her body and that he had a partially disassembled nine millimeter in her car, in his car a year later, correct? Yes, but there were a few other pieces of evidence that I think we should consider with that. Uh, one, the casing actually would, could be linked 
to the parts of the pistol which were found in multiple ways. First, of course, is caliber, as we've noted. But two, the shell casing had an ejector mark on it, which indicated that it was fired from a semi-automatic pistol as opposed to a revolver. The firing pin, the shape of the firing pin, which fired the casing, would have matched that gun had it still had its, the, the slide assembly, which included the barrel. So by that gun, you mean that type of gun, not that particular gun. It's not like a fingerprint. Correct. Okay. Right. But and there are a lot of semi-automatic 9mm weapons out there, so right. it wouldn't have also matched thousands of other weapons that it, other people would have owned. It, it could, but it's kind of a, um, a narrowing process, right? So we narrow it to a semi-automatic, we narrow it to a 9mm, we narrow it to this particular type of firing pen. We also narrow it in that it had a particular type of breech face markings when it was found. What are breech face markings? Uh, it, those are markings which happen on the rear of the shell casing as the slide assembly slams home and it hits the, the rear of the casing. There are different types of breech faces. There are smooth ones, there are ones that have parallel marks and ones which have circular marks. This was a smooth breech face which again would have been consistent. We also know that the, the loaded magazine which fit this particular pistol which was found hidden in the trunk of the car that the defendant drove, that magazine had his DNA on it. And again, it was at this one trillion times more likely number. So these were all ways in which, and again, we, we view that along with our other evidence of the DNA, where she was found, of their substantial contacts uh, together. The fact well, let, that let he- me, Let yeah. me jump in. There was a point made by um, Mr. Woodward about that there were numerous Facebook interactions um, uh, between the victim and defendant, correct? Yes. And review, and the police, um, through search warrant, obtained those and were able to review them. And but there was no hint of motive or any kind of um, um, problem with the relationship or or anything else that would suggest. The crime of violence that, that evidently occurred for the victim, correct? Well, I don't know that I would state it quite that broadly. First of all, the state doesn't have to prove motive. That's Understand. not an element of the crime. Understood, but we have a highly circumstantial case. Correct. And, and you're trying to, as you illustrated, narrow right. the relationship between these two individuals to the, the crime and the act itself. Correct. Okay. And, and what we do have here is we have the defendant, a 33-year-old male, who had no prior contact with this 14-year-old female runaway, meets her kind of by random chance, and within a few days begins having extensive social media contact with her, takes her out to get pizza, he introduces her to his dog, they take the dog to the vet, She's over at his house. Her last known Facebook location is at the residence where he lives with his mother. He's taking her to a hair appointment. And the jury could certainly look at that and say, well, what was his motive for establishing contact with her? Was this simply an altruistic do-gooder? Or when we look at that in conjunction with the fact that his DNA is found on the cords binding the wrists of her dead body, was there something else? Afoot. And I think that that's, uh, again, that's part of why we take the facts and we look at them as a, 
as a whole because no one of them stands alone. So let's talk about this uh, gun report from ATF. Yes. Under how do you, why do you say it was authenticated? Um, because the, um, under rule 901 and those sets of rules, uh, it fits under 901B7, which talks about authentication of public records. In this particular case, Detective Poe, and I'll, I'll, I'll point you to the transcript, volume four at page 201, it's kind of the, the pen site here. Uh, the, Detective Poe talked about these kinds of records. He said, this is where I get ATF records from. I log in, I'm familiar with it. I've run these reports before. They have this E-Trace report program. This is where I always get the documents of this kind. And I request them. This is from the ATF, which is an arm of the federal government. And that fits under 901B7, which says that that authentication can be met in that way by testimony that the purported public record is from the office where items of this kind are kept. That is a different foundation. Are you saying that the public official does not have to certify this for a public record? That, that it's it, whoever, I could say, I'm familiar with ATF records and I've used them before, and that's a sufficient authentication? Yes, because we're looking at a different set of rules. The self-authentication, uh, those rules, under 902 are, are what appellant focuses on. 901 is a different foundation. This, is, this can be authenticated by a witness, and in this case, the detective, as a law enforcement officer, testified, I'm familiar with this, this is part of my job, I run these gun trace reports. But it's not, he's not the public agency. I mean, isn't that a point of distinction, that, that he's testifying as a user of that? In other words, it would be as if somebody said, I went into this office and got this report. He doesn't have any duty, legal or otherwise, or obligation to compile that report or maintain that report. That's correct, Your Honor, and that's why we're talking about 901 instead of 902. The foundation under 902 has all of the things that we typically think of when we think of a record, that it's made at or, or by, by a person who has a duty so to So then walk correct. me through why 901, that a third party and not somebody that is the um, has any duty or obligation to maintain the record can authenticate it. Yes, and in fact, that was, that was the point of the state's notice of additional authority, uh, the Dooms case, which is in that notice. In the, in the first- Did you make this argument in your uh, initial brief that you filed? Uh, no. This so is this a, is a new argument? Yes. Well, no, we, we do cite the Pavlovich case in our discussion of authentication, which is a 901 case. So it is referenced via that case. We don't specifically talk about 901b7, but this court, of course, is always free to affirm on any legal basis which is supported by the record. You're, you argued, uh, you argued in this, in your brief about 902 and whether or not it was uh, authenticated as a business record. Did you I, not? Uh, I, I believe, and, and just to be clear, I didn't write the original brief. Well, the state. Uh, but the state, the correct. State. And, and, and I think our citation to Embry in that case does kind of go directly to the point that appellant makes, which is that 
Um, he tries to say, well, an officer can't make this foundation. And Embry says you don't have to have a person from the original organization which, is, which generated the document in order to lay that foundation. Dooms basically holds the same thing as regards 901 cases. And in fact, I want to point out that the, in the Dooms case, for that proposition, it cites an earlier case, Harden, in which case a police officer was the sponsoring witness for records which were kept by the clerk of the courts. And that case was cited with approval as somebody else who could talk about that authentication, even though the officer was obviously not an employee of the clerk of the courts. So are you arguing under 902, your argument now, that this officer was an other qualified person? You can have the custodian of the record or any other qualified person. Are you now arguing that the detective was an other qualified person under 902? Well, I'm not arguing under 902. I'm arguing under 901. Well, that, let's that assume that it's been waived, that you've waived 901. Okay. All right? Let's assume that you've waived that. What's your argument under 902? I, I believe that this particular officer was able to testify about ATF reports. And again, if you go, if you go through that section of the record, he talks about his famili familiarity with it, that that's a part of his job to run gun trace reports. He's dealt with the ATF before. He has a particular login to be able to go uh, in and, and get these reports. But isn't and the, this, kind of isn't the, that's the Embry case, right? The, 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 in Embry, this was the National Precursor Log Exchange. Yes. And that was a business record. And the custodian of the record was this third party, I think APRIS, which is a software company that, that manages the documentation. In other words, they're receiving data Correct. from the, the different sources, law enforcement or, or the um, uh, pharmacies or whatever on the precursors, and then they're managing it and compiling it. So that's a custodian of the record under the Rule 902, correct? Well, and, and I, even though they're not the governmental agency, they're serving that role as custodian. Right, but I, I think, and I'm just going off of my memory of Embry, I don't have it directly in front of me, but as I remember Embry, the, the challenge was they wanted to be able to challenge the original documents, right? And they said, hey, we, we're not able to try to attack this by looking at who put the records in, whether they did it correctly, did they get ID, you know, those kinds of things. It's this kind of next person in the chain, and they shouldn't be able to to provide this authentication. But I think the authentication, at least at Emory, was provided by that custodian of the record, which I, it would appear the distinction under 902 for this instance was is that the law enforcement officer who testified at trial was not a custodian of the record. And, and that's correct. And, okay. and, and that's why the state is uh, arguing to this court that I believe it fits under 901. So regardless, is it harmless error? Uh, yes, for a couple of reasons. One, it is cumulative. Again, as this court has noted, the, the substance of the, the, the limited reason why the trace report came in, the detective already testified to that. It was unobjected to. Nobody moved to strike his testimony. And the reason it came in was to establish the date that the gun had been purchased. Correct. Correct. And, and that's what the officer testified to. Again, this was not objected to. So even had the trace report been kept out, the jury still had before it, a trace report was run. It was purchased in 2016. 
which was after the point in time in which the defendant's brother had passed. Talk about the contents of that report. Yes. All right. Uh, Mr. Woodward was talking about the contents being a violation of 404B. Uh, which is a new argument on appeal, uh, but I would say that that I, so I waived it. Yes. All right. Um, but even if you look at it, uh, I disagree with his characterization of what that record says. When that record says that a gun was recovered, it says nothing, and there, I don't believe there's anything in the record which says anything about that gun being stolen. When it says that it was recovered, it was simply recovered pursuant to a search warrant. So for us to infer that somehow this necessarily implied that the gun was stolen or that this was 404 evidence is simply unsupported by the record. The jury would have had to have completely speculated that. There was no evidence in the record to support it. How else would a gun be re recovered? It could have been lost, or in this case, even had it been lawfully purchased, date of recovery was simply the date in which the FBI searched the car and found the gun. That's the date of recovery. There is no reference in the record to this being a stolen gun. Uh, additionally, the, the report in this case would have been harmless not only because it was cumulative, but because there was substantial independent evidence which held much more probative value about the possession of the gun. In this case, the fact that it was found in his car where his IDs were, he admitted he knew that, I think he called it half a gun was there, hidden under the trunk, uh, the flooring of the trunk. He admitted to handling the gun, moving it when he cleaned it, and it had his DNA on the loaded magazine. All of that evidence was much more probative of his possession of the gun uh, than the trace report would have been. What do you say about his third argument in that the uh, tape recording, his, his uh statement to the police had when I got home, when I got home, when I got home a number of times. Uh, yes. His, his use of the phrase, since I got home, did not suggest that he had previously been incarcerated because no information was given to the jury that he had previously been incarcerated to which that could be linked. It could just as easily have been that he lived out of state, that he had been in the military, been somewhere else. The evidence was that he lived with his mother, which would be, for many people, I went home to live with mom, and so he could have lived somewhere else and then moved back home with his mother. There were any number of alternatives that that phrase could have meant. Nowhere was it ever mentioned that he had previously been incarcerated. And additionally, this jury received two different instructions that were both in preliminary and final, that their conviction was not to be based on speculation, which is what this jury would have had to have done to have concluded that he had been incarcerated since there was no other evidence. Plus, there was the other uh, instruction talking about weighing evidence in which they were instructed, you are to determine the facts from the evidence, not on any other source, and you are not to be swayed by conjecture. There is no reason that this court should presume that that jury made such a, a leap of logic or leap of speculation to somehow presume that since I got home 
had to mean that he had previously been incarcerated. You call that a leap of uh, a leap of conjecture or speculation, but this is really a circumstantial case where there's inferences that the the jury can make, and how is the inference of he did it different than the inference of from since I got home? And in a circumstantial case, there is evidence from which those leaps are made. DNA on a cord, possession of what could be the means, their contacts together, uh, the fact that her last known location was at his mother's house. And I see my time is up, but would you like me to? You can finish your finish sentence that? if you'd like. Okay. Um, and, and all of the other evidence that we've discussed and that's contained in our brief, all of that is evidence from which the speculative, uh, as I think, you've re referred to it, I don't believe it's speculative because it's based on evidence. That inferential leap can be made, which is unlike the defendant's argument about 404. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Welliver. Mr. Woodward. Thank you, Your Honor. Just two points. Dumas specifically held, the certification of public records must be made by the custodian of the records in regards to driving records, in this case, the certification must come from the BMV, not an entity or individual not affiliated with that agency. This officer was not affiliated with the ATF in any respect. He was not qualified to make that certification uh, by our trial rules. And we have to remember, all of, the, all of these authentication rules are based upon 803.6, I believe it is, the business record exception. And there are three subparts that you have to meet to get a valid certification. Only once you get that certification, then is it authenticated under 901 or 902. So say matter, we agree with you, it, how is it not harmless error? Again, if that document doesn't come in, that 404B evidence doesn't come in. And I don't have to argue 404B evidence. All I have to show is it wasn't authenticated properly. And if it's not authenticated properly, the person testifying has to, has to uh, establish that basis um, during his testimony, which didn't happen in Other this case. Other than the gun was recovered on that gun report, was there anything else that indicated possible other crimes? The thing that stands out in my mind is it had 1,644 days um, time to crime or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a specific reference to it, and, and you really can't tell by re reading it if they're talking about the gun being stolen. But were those elements raised in your briefing? The time to crime or the other specifics uh, that you're arguing this forbidden inference is made on 404B with respect to that exhibit? Did, did I raise that argument? Correct. No, I did not. Okay. Because I need not get to that argument if it's not authenticated properly. And the other point I wanted to but make is... But isn't it an element of harmless error, though? Well, it, it's circular. We go back to it's not harmless error because it injected something into evidence that shouldn't have been there. And um, to be certified by the person testifying, you have to have the original document under 902. You can't even use a copy. 
So there's no way that document gets in under either 901 or 902, regardless of the way the state wants to uh, frame the issue. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to point out is that, you know, this case. So when they said a thousand days or whatever to the crime, you think that was referring to uh, the death of T? I didn't, uh, I didn't count backwards. It's three, 365, so that's about four years from November. Um, so the thousand was, a thousand days was referring to? 1,644. I couldn't tell, and no, that had to be, that had to be from the time the gun was purchased or stolen or lost right. or whatever. That has to be from that time. All right. And I, of course, the obvious inference is, well, this guy in possession of the gun must be the one that stole it. Uh, finally, I wanted to point out, because the state relies upon the fact that Mr. Simmons said he worked on cars and these were spark plug wires. But when he was arrested, when his car was searched, there was never anything recovered indicative of the fact that he was a mechanic or regularly worked on cars. There weren't even tools found anywhere they searched that would indicate that he would have these types of things available. There's no indication that he ever operated out of a garage for all we know, he was just a you know a, a backyard mechanic, and you know worked on people's cars from time to time. So the, I think that spark plug wire argument is sort of a red herring. It, it really doesn't add to the state's case. And is it a circumstance? Yes, it is, but it, it holds very little, if any, weight at all. And we have to look at this case in its totality because it is a circumstantial case. And you can't add up these two or three circumstances. That's all they have. And get to murder. You just can't get there. That's why we're requesting reversal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for your uh, very well-reasoned arguments. We appreciate you coming here. And we're going to be in recess right now. So let's call, call the... All rise. Thank you.